Hey everybody, this is episode 52 of Artist Soapbox. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. You'll no longer find Rebecca Miel sweating through a Tyvek suit in the Lower Ninth or eating curry in a refugee camp in Unamutuna, but that doesn't mean she's any less risk-averse. These days, Rebecca Miel is balancing the death-defying feat of raising twins with the act of listening hard for how to be a good citizen in her adopted hometown of Durham, North Carolina. Her current job title is creative director of her own shop, Miel Design Studio, where she spends most of her time trying to make beautiful sense out of a complex world. Ask her what that means, but don't be surprised if the answer has something to do with books or school lunch. Indeed, in this episode, we do talk about the school lunch debt project, Rebecca's book project for kids, and her position on the Durham Mayor's Council for Women representing arts and culture. I didn't even know that this council existed until I spoke to her. So we talk about all of these big projects, but what we talked very little about was her actual design work for Miel Design Studio. So make sure to check out her website, mieldesignstudio.com, to see her portfolio, including a beautiful exhibit design of Polly Murray's life and work. I spoke with Rebecca in the aftermath of Hurricane Florence. She was doing quite a bit of volunteer work to aid folks who were hardest hit despite having damage done to her own neighborhood. On the day of the interview, she sent me the message, I'm on my way, but our road is blocked with a sinkhole, and construction has me blocked in, working on getting out. And she did. This episode ranges wide, but comes back again and again to how to chase seemingly impossible goals, showing up when and how we can, and living and working in alignment with our core values. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Tamara. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. So your business, Miel Design Studio, specializes in working with social justice organizations, nonprofits, entrepreneurs, artists, and authors. You are a print, brand, and exhibit design agency located in Durham, North Carolina. Why focus on those specific client groups? So for me as a graphic designer, I was sort of called to do the work because I'm interested in making sense of the world. So my tagline is making beautiful sense out of a complex world. And design is a way for me to organize information and also sort of make sense of these larger, more complicated issues in the world. So I've always been drawn to work on the, on with social justice groups and nonprofits outside of my work. So doing it in my work is also, it also just makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's why I focus on those specific groups. In addition to working with those specific groups of people, I know you also do pro bono work. You participate in fundraising and volunteering. We'll talk a little bit more about that. All of this under the umbrella of your business and your brand how does living out your core beliefs in these ways impact your business? It definitely impacts it. We'll talk about the school lunch debt paid out in a little bit, but um, there are times when it almost overtakes my business. Um, this has been something I've been working on this year because last year I really struggled on the idea of balance because 
I have clients that I need to serve full time. And then if the school lunch debt pay down ended up taking about 40 hours a week of my time when it was really rolling. So there are points when um, I myself am not sleeping, which mm. is not healthy or sustainable. But also I need to balance the needs of the clients that I'm working with and the other work that I do. And there will always be more work to do. So how do I sort of correct and get back to the center of the balance of doing work and taking care of myself. So listening to the community and showing up where I can, but also knowing that I'm no good if I'm also burnt out all the time. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the school lunch debt pay down. I actually first heard your name associated with this crowdfunding campaign to pay down the Durham Public Schools lunch debt. And you raised $75,000 for school kids to pay off the debts owed for school lunches. So fundraising at this level is a huge task, but you clearly galvanized the community around this. Why did you even embark on this in the first place? Would you tell us the story? (laughs) Yeah, so um, it was, if I'm being totally honest, it was a little bit of a surprise to me, how quickly the the fundraising picked up, it sort of went um, a bit viral overnight. I've been doing fundraising and organizing like this for years, and it's usually a slow trickle uh, when I'm doing fundraising like this. But I was called to do this with a group of moms. I was inspired by Flando Castile, who was the nutrition manager in St. Paul, Minnesota, who was shot by the police his memorial fund was to pay down the school lunch debt. So I think that was sort of the original seed of the idea. And then I know some other Durham folks the previous year had raised money to pay down the free and reduced lunch debt. So I wanted to sort of galvanize a group of moms to raise money around this. And I called the nutrition manager and I was expecting him to say the debt was And he told me that from the beginning of the school year till the middle of October when I started this, the debt was already $103,000. So I was shocked by how much that amount was. I put up the GoFundMe page that went directly to the nutrition services. I went into a meeting and I came out and I had already raised several thousand dollars. So that was a sign that this was, one, something the community cared about. And two, there was a momentum here that I couldn't stop. So from that moment on until basically about the middle of December, I was working on this at least 40 hours a week, Mm. just trying to keep that momentum going, keeping it um, in the forefront of people's minds and just trying to get the debt paid down. And what did this work look like more specifically? Were you making phone calls or writing blog posts A lot of it was me making phone calls. Um, And so I had put together a small press kit um, to send out to businesses, and there were different levels that they could sponsor. But, I mean, the Durham community is incredible. And once one business had heard about the pay down, other businesses were being involved. I think at the end there were around 50 businesses that donated to, to the cause. Um, so a lot of it was me calling those businesses, sending out emails, following up, making connections, asking people like, who in this community do you know that could support this? And then also running the social media behind it. So everybody who sponsored got a different level of um, either a mention on Instagram or 
Facebook, I would mention them in any press because the, also there were a lot of a lot of interest from the press as well. Um, so just managing all of that PR from the other side. And it was important to me in the beginning that a few things were covered with this. So one, it had to be equitable. So it had to come from nutrition services and it had to go across all of the different schools. It couldn't just go to one, like a particular school that was resourced. Some of the lunch debt is paid down by PTAs in different schools, um, but there are some schools that don't have PTAs. So it was starting with the the free and reduced lunch debt first, paying that off, and then um, just spending a lot of time being in touch with the director of nutrition services, asking what needed to be paid down next, and making sure all of that was managed as well. And trying as much as I could to thank donors. There was a point when it kind of it hit a tipping point with the number of donors where my my thank yous were sort of just like large emails to folks, but there was so much generosity and such a great response to this um, that I was just trying to keep up with all of the pieces. And it also meant working. There were times when I was doing some of this work at 2 a.m., mm-hmm. not, not during my work day. Why do you think there was such a huge response to this topic? I think part of it was the time of year. It was around uh, late October, November. So there were folks who were responding to that. I think that's the time of year when people think about food and giving. And um, there were some stories that I had that were focused around this one. There was one story about a kid who, a, a friend of mine who's a student teacher, she was in a cafeteria and it was their special Thanksgiving meal, and she noticed that the kid next to her just had a cold sandwich and milk, and everybody else had the special Thanksgiving meal. And it took her until she was headed home to figure out what was happening. And she realized that that kid didn't get the meal that everybody else did because he um, or they had a, a debt on their lunch account. So I think that story and the, the storytelling around that motivated folks. But I think it's also just the spirit of Durham that um, that when calls to this calls to action like this happen, uh, folks respond. Like what's happening right now with with Hurricane Florence down east. But um, the other piece too that I I talked about the equity piece, but the other piece was I really wanted this to not just be a conversation about paying down a debt and then facing the debt again next year. So a piece, some of the part of what I did was trying to get the conversation started about what would it mean to reform lunch debt and what would it mean to have free lunch in Durham, which is, I found out, very complicated and has a lot of moving parts. But I think that there is some good energy in different projects moving towards that too. Why is it complicated? All sorts of things like federal reimbursements complicated, um, how healthy lunches are. A lot of parents want lunches to be healthier for students. Also, how you can get food into cafeterias. I I got a lot of feedback that folks wanted local farmers to donate, but it's a complicated process to even get food into the school system. Um, but so this year, instead of – I'm not going to be doing the full-scale pay-down this year, partially because – it was more time than one person could manage, but also um, it did create some unexpected outcomes. Like the for a little bit, the debt ballooned because 
folks knew that there was an effort to pay it down, so less bills were getting paid. That sort of resolved towards the end, but it just means that it's not sustainable to do year after year. So I'm partnering with um, Beth and Lyndon at the Food Insight Group, and they are running a, uh, an event called Durham Bowls, which is where they work with nutrition management, and so cafeteria managers and local chefs. They've paired them up to kind of reimagine what a healthy school lunch would be. So um, it's folks from the, the Durham and Maddie B's working with cafeteria managers to create healthier mm-hmm. <laughs> school lunches that will then be served in the cafeteria and then in the restaurants. There's an event on um, Saturday, October 13th from 3 to 6 at the Scrap Exchange where they'll be taste testing all of the meals and then voting. Um, it's pretty great. They have orange team and a blue team and a purple team, and they've been working together for the past four or five months to create these new additions to the menus and school lunches, and they look delicious. So I'm excited about that. So I just want to clarify some of this because I had no idea the size of this problem, and I'm guessing that part of the community response was because other people didn't have an understanding of it as well. But you're saying that this $100,000 debt was just from a few months of a, of a school year. So does that mean there's that same amount every year? Yeah. It was sort of chasing an impossible goal for a little bit because as I was fundraising, the amount was still going up. And I, I haven't checked in to see what the amount is this year already, but there were points where it was more in debt than the amount I was raising mm-hmm. because it just keeps tallying up. So, yeah, it'll happen year after year, unfortunately. There are all sorts of varying consequences for that debt. So some of it is that it has to come from the larger education budget if it doesn't get paid. But also on the student level, it means that there's a secondary problem, school lunch shaming, where in elementary school, it's not as big of a problem because kids don't notice it as much. But towards middle and high school, kids know who has the alternate lunch. So there are kids who just opt out of eating so that they aren't identified as a kid who can't pay for their lunch. Mm. So you alluded to this, but I want to dig in a little bit more. You said that you were working 40 hours a week on this for quite a while and, you know, working till 2 a.m. And what was happening with the rest of your business at this time, Your, your design clients? Yeah, so um, I was at a point where it was around the holidays so I could stop a little bit, but I definitely, um, I sort of took for granted how smoothly my business was running up till that point um, because I foolishly didn't equate not working on my business and in my business as not being able to sustain my business. So there was a point where um, for the first time in a while, I was in the red. I'm still trying to slowly work out of that because I didn't have time to do all this stuff outside of just doing design work. So getting clients or doing professional development, doing all of those other pieces that keep my business running. So it definitely made a pretty big impact on my business and also made me rethink like what is sustainable and what is that balance between being able to run my own business and also take care of myself, Mm -hmm. show up for my family. I'm not an extrovert, so I also need that space in the day to be able to recharge, to go out to do things. And 
I mean, I spent so much. I don't like talking on the phone. And I spent so much of this campaign just picking up the phone and being like, hello, you don't know me. I'm going to ask you for money. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious about this trend that I'm seeing where people are not separating their business and the beliefs, the core beliefs that they're implementing in their business from the core beliefs that they have as just human beings in the world, in their sort of after-hours life. Because you you did this fundraising as part, or at least under the umbrella, of Miel Design Studio. Why did you do that instead of separating them out and just saying, well, this is my after-work hobby kind of volunteer stuff that I'm doing? Well, I think I'm really lucky that I'm able to do it during my work hours. Um, it It is important that I work and that I contribute to our family, but I also, um, because of the work I do, I can sometimes do it in odd hours and I can still manage to fit it in, but I have a really hard time finding a separation between the two. Like, as an example, right now, Hurricane Florence getting supplies down east. I've been working with Operation Airdrop to collect. Um, there's an, there's been an urgent need for baby formula, and there are planes leaving the airport. There's been, uh, I think, over 200 volunteer pilots flew into RDU, and they're, they're dropping off supplies to areas that aren't accessible by roads. So they've needed supplies early in the morning. And because I have a flexible schedule, to some extent, I can, you know, collect resources from folks, go to Costco, get formula and drop it off. So I'm I'm very, I recognize that I'm really privileged that I'm able to do this to this extent, um, that there's no, there's no line between what I do in my business and, and who I am as a person and what, what values I bring to my business. It sometimes is a challenge There are some times when it becomes more emotionally draining than I anticipate, especially this week after the hurricane and um, some other times when I've been working on on some really intense subject matter. Mm -hmm. So what practices have you put in place or do you plan to put in place (laughs) moving forward (laughs) to, to help yourself through these difficult times when you're trying to choose between taking care of yourself and, um, and, and serving others or serving your business or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm not very good at that. I I am part of this group called We Collective, which is women entrepreneurs. And it's a group of it's a large group of women who meet in smaller groups, and they really help me with accountability because sometimes if I have time in a day, I will find time to fill it doing something. And when things like this come up, I'll send them a message like, can somebody help me figure out how to say no? Because that is one of the things that I'm really bad at. Mm-hmm. So trying to figure out how to say not just no, I can't do this ever, but no, could I do this or could I do this later? And also it it isn't always me that needs to do the work there's always there's always folks who will show up and do the work especially in durham so am how am i contributing the best that i can to what i'm doing because if i'm working all the time and up at 2am and taking my kids to school and you know trying to you know keep my marriage going and all of <laughs> like all of that other stuff that happens be a friend show up then then i have to put limits on it but mm-hmm. i'm i'm honestly i'm not very good at it I need to have like a giant sign above my computer that's like, it's okay to say no. <laughs> right, right. This is, comes up 
in every conversation that I have with people. Really? Yes. It is <laughs> remarkable. What is going on? Why Why are we having such a hard time saying no? So why is it hard for you to say no to things? I always feel like I'm not doing enough no matter what I do. I, that idea that I'm a failure to somebody somewhere is always looming. And it's um, like a myth I've created about what I do. Because even after the school lunch debt thing, I because I didn't reach the full amount, I was like, oh, this isn't a success. Right, I right. didn't do what I was supposed to do, you know. <laughs> yes. Because I set sort of impossible goals for myself. But I think also, I mean, maybe this is, hasn't been your experience with um, folks you've been interviewing, but I feel like it's really hard for women in particular to say no, because um, I recently had a couple of conversations where I was trying to say no, and I immediately got a response that people were like, you are so hostile. And I was really? Like, but I just, I'm just telling you that I cannot do this right now, or this needs to be done in a different way. And I think I think that's unique to women. Like as soon yeah. as I assert myself, and I, I'm not, I don't sugarcoat it. I'm like, no, I can't do this now. I have to rearrange this priority, then it becomes like a, why are you so angry? Mm. I've definitely gotten the response, well, what about if we did this then? Could you could you work with us if we changed these components? I'm like, then I have to say no again. It's like, I can't, I can't really fit this into my lifestyle. Well, I want to work with you however I can. So how about we do this? It's like, right. oh my God, <laughs> I'm having an anxiety attack because I have to keep going back to this. You know, it's taking more time for me to extricate myself from this. It's already provokes a lot of anxiety for me in the first place to have to say no to a thing because right. I'm afraid, you know, I'll never get asked to do this again or somebody will be mad at me. And there, I mean, there's a, a huge number of there's a huge list of things that I'm afraid of that are not based in reality, but I'm still trying to manage them. And so sometimes it's just easier to say yes and like gut it out than having to go through the process of trying to let the person let me say no, if that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have a lot of anxiety around that, too, because it's also like even after the school lunch thing, it's like you say yes to all of these things. Why are you saying no to me? Yeah. So it is a longer process. So sometimes I do just I'm like, OK, this is going to take me an hour to do this or it's going to take me several phone calls and the emotional labor of trying to present it in a way that isn't offensive or hostile. Right. To get through that process, this time it's just like, okay, I'll just do this work, which at the end of the day means that I'm not always listening to what I need, but it is a balance. Well, I'm glad that you have a group of people you can turn to to help manage that because it sounds like this is such a widespread challenge that we do need to kind of band together and help each other uh, manage the, the setting boundaries is really what it is, right? It's like, well, you know... I will help as much as I can, but there's a certain point beyond which I cannot go. Right. So, And that's okay. And we need to keep telling that to each other. Right. Because it's one of those things that it's really hard to tell yourself. But when you see somebody else do it, you're like, you just told me you haven't slept in two weeks. And now you're doing this other, like the outside perspective of somebody else seeing what you're doing is is sometimes really important, not just for validation, but to just be like, you need to give yourself a break. Right. That's right. sometimes really hard to tell yourself. So on that note, let's talk about something else that you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to talk about the Durham Mayor's Council for Women. Now, our listeners may not know that this exists. I didn't know that it exists because I think it's relatively new 
Um, but you are on this council for women representing arts and culture. Could you tell us a little bit about what this is or why it was formed? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So it was, uh, we first met in March, so it hasn't even been maybe just six months, but it is a group of nine women, all with different backgrounds. There are seven who represent specific areas like arts and culture or health and safety, and then two at-large members. Um, but we all have different backgrounds. There's teachers, nurses, lawyers, community Uh, organizers, artists, all sorts of different folks. Um, But it was formed, it was an idea that was initially proposed by former city council member Cora Cole McFadden. And a group called Cities for CEDAW came to a city council meeting. I sometimes think Durham's mayor council for women is a mouthful, Mm -hmm. but um, CEDAW is even more so. So CEDAW stands for the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, it was something that was ratified by a lot of other countries, but of course was not ratified on a federal level in the United States. So now it's become a grassroots movement with the Cities for CEDAW group to go from city to city to adopt this uh, resolution to really look at all of the different forms of discrimination against women on a data level, and then how do you apply that to advocacy and policy in a city? And one of our first resolutions was to adopt that in Durham. So Durham is the first city in North Carolina to adopt CEDAW as a resolution. Hmm. But that is all sort of, to me at least, I'm I'm fairly new to the world of politics, so I'm learning a lot. But that seems just like a obtuse idea. So really what we're doing as a council is figuring out what that means for Durham. Hmm. And how do you do that? So right now we're we're really in this uh, place of gathering data. So listening to the community, we are working on a report that is the state of women in Durham. And um, we're going to gather as much data as we can about issues women are facing with housing and child care and maternity care and domestic violence and all of the things that are not always only unique to women, but how do they affect women in different ways, impact women in different ways. So collecting that report, but also just listening as much as we can. And as a council, it's it's also really important for us that when we're talking about women, so it's the women's council, but that also includes cis and trans women, non-binary folks and girls. So basically everything other than than men in the city. So what issues are they facing? And then we invite folks to come to our meetings, which happen the second Tuesday of every month from 6 to 8, and it's in City Hall on the second floor. It starts at 6, but there's time for public comment. Mm-hmm. So it's every second Tuesday. We invite folks to come in to either talk about what they're working on, talk about their organization and how we as a group can advocate or in in some ways work on resolutions like this too. But but what steps can we take to improve the lives of women and girls in Durham? So you said at this point you are in a data gathering phase. Do you have a sense of how long that will last? I'm not sure. I think the report will be out within a year. But in the meantime, we're trying to do smaller projects as we can. So as an example, right now, in response to the hurricane, the Women's Council is 
collecting diapers for the diaper bank to send down east. So when there's a moment that we can do things that make sense for the larger community, we'll do that. But I'm hoping that as soon as we start getting some more of this information, we'll be able to start taking action. You are representing arts and culture on the council. What does that mean to represent arts and culture in Durham? <laughs> That's, it's, a, it's a really big, broad area. In the definition of the bylaws, it was like working with Parks and Rec, but also I have been trying to spend some time meeting with artists and folks in the theater and musicians, a variety of folks. So when we're in meetings and there are discussions about the critical need of housing in Durham and the critical need of more childcare resources and early childhood education, I think sometimes arts gets overlooked arts and culture gets overlooked. So I'm just trying to be mindful of how it's impacting the arts and culture community in Durham and thinking about all of those pieces in context of the arts and how it's impacting artists' lives. So you mean that critical needs for housing and childcare, how those needs might impact the artists in Durham? Is that what you mean? Yeah, in some ways that, but also like what needs do artists have that need to be brought to the table that would otherwise be overlooked. So right now in my role representing arts and culture, I have two sort of broad ideas that I would really like to see happen. And these are the very beginnings of this conversation. We talked about the data gathering. So finding ways to equitably listen to the community, to advocate for artists. But the two things I've been hearing about the most is one, trying to find another way to have access to affordable space in downtown. We've lost a lot of theaters and DIY spaces in the last few years with construction. So how can we be mindful of that space in the community? But also the beginning of the discussion of what it would mean to have an official office that focuses on cultural resources in Durham. So somebody who is specifically in the city dedicated to working on arts and culture. Mm. Like, as an example, Raleigh has an Office of the Arts, but we don't have that in Durham right now. Okay, tell me more about that. What, what, what might that look like? <laughs> yeah, well, so this is, this is one of the, I think, newest things. But I think, so there's a whole lot of committees that operate right now to sort of sustain arts. There's the Cultural Affairs Committee. There is the Public Arts Subcommittee, and then a variety of other folks in different departments who volunteer to sort of work on public art and art spaces in Durham. I've seen and heard that there are folks who who start to feel burned out always doing that work for free, advocating for artists in the city. So what would it mean in the city to have somebody who gets paid to do that work, whose livelihood can come from supporting the arts in Durham? Because so much of, you know, Durham being a great place to live has to do with the artists and the musicians and all of the folks who make Durham different. But if they're not being supported, then it's not sustainable for them to stay in Durham. Right, right. Is there anything else about the Durham Mayor's Council for Women that you think would be helpful for people to know or your role on that council? Uh, well, I mean, I'm always open to talk. I right now have, in my <laughs> trying to balance and schedule things, I have like one lunch a week that I'm scheduling to to meet with folks to talk about how the changes in Durham are impacting their livelihood as an artist. So I'm always open to talk. So 
folks can either send me an email or send me a message on Facebook and I'll figure out a way for us to to have that discussion. So that's still part of the ongoing equitable conversation piece. But just that we're all really open to talking about what either critical or like, I mean, the the cultural affairs position, that's like a long term, it's like a long goal. So either critical needs, but also what would it mean to have a really sustainable arts community in Durham? Mm -hmm. This makes me laugh because we spent a whole lot of time talking about saying no to things. And now we keep bringing up different things that you're working on. (laughs) Um, But they're also interesting. I don't want to skip anything. So I just want to make sure we have some time to talk about an upcoming book project that you are working on. This is cracking me up. So, Rebecca, what is your upcoming book project that you're working on? Yeah, this probably seems like it's completely out of left field because I like I need to say no to things and not take on more projects. But so um, I am collaborating with a, a group of teachers and trauma specialists and safety experts on a book. So I have six-year-old twins, and the way that they handle safety drills at their school is really unique. So instead of talking about active shooter drills or fire drills or tornado drills, the teachers have put together a curriculum that talk about it in terms of animal behavior and animal movements. So it prepares kids adequately for emergencies without using language like active shooter drills. I don't know how. I'm not saying that's used widely across the school system, but there are cases when it is. Instead of saying a fire drill, you talk about being jackrabbit safe, and it means quickly following your teacher outside in an orderly in an orderly manner. And then instead of an active shooter drill, they talk about mouse safe. And so the mouse behavior is being cozy and quiet altogether and trying to be quiet as a mouse. And we're still working on this as an idea, but um, I'm working on a book and working with an illustrator to be able to present the, this idea more widely to early childhood. So this would be like preschool, elementary school students to talk about it in a way that keeps them safe and they know what they're supposed to do in the situation, but doesn't either re-traumatize them if they've experienced any of these situations before or present it in a developmentally appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Because it's really important in these situations that kids know exactly what to do. But is there another way to do that that isn't just making them scared? I imagine that would also give parents some language that they could use because I think most parents, well, I'll speak for myself, I don't necessarily know how to talk to my child about these things. And and having some sort of structure would be really helpful and some language to put around it that doesn't scare me as much either as a parent. Yeah, I think if I'm being totally honest, I think it probably scares me as a parent more than it scares my kids because they it's just a thing they do at school. I know what that looks like from a wider perspective. And also from my background, my um, my high school that I grew up that I went to school in a small town in Ohio was one of the earlier schools where there was a school shooting. So that sort of drew me to this because I wanted there to be another way to talk about this with kids. But I, I think it is true that it is more like my fear than than my kids. Mm-hmm. So being able to have language to talk about dif- difficult things like this and 
still be sure that your kid is prepared for the world. And I don't want to shelter them. I mean, I we have a lot of conversations about police shootings and what like we go to marches together and we talk about all of that stuff. But there are some places where I, I just don't think they're right. I don't think that three or four year olds need to know what an active shooter drill is. Right. Right. So what does it look like to put together a book? It's well, <laughs> it's been a long process right now. So we're working collaboratively to write the text and then um, I'm working with an illustrator to just do some character samples. And then um, I think in starting in November, I'm going to launch a Kickstarter. Now that I'm saying it, it's going to happen. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a deadline. <laughs> Say it out loud and make it happen. So starting in November, there'll be a Kickstarter to fund getting the book printed. And then um, I'm going to work with teachers to develop a curriculum to share and then uh, also with some safety experts to be sure that, I mean, this could be, I'm also open to the idea that this could be a horrible idea mm-hmm. and that it just is not going to work for um, for school systems to adopt and that's okay too, but I want to at least try to have the conversation. So figuring out all of those pieces and being accountable to being sure that it's safe and is appropriate Language-wise, a teacher I was working with was talking about how there needs to be simple, repetitive keywords throughout the book so that kids can really connect to that action to a keyword. So it's learning about all of those different pieces and then doing all the production to put the book together and then figuring out how to send it out in the world. Hmm. And what might the timeline look like for that? So if the Kickstarter runs through November and December, if our hypothesis proves that it could be a useful tool, then I'm hoping it'll be out next summer. Okay. I'd like to try and tie all of these things together <laughs> in a question. Let me see if I can if I can do it. In our pre-interview phone conversation, you said that one of the through lines in your life these days is making Durham a more equitable and just place. You clearly have a heart for service, um, for arts organizations, but also for children and um, for the community in which we live. You're doing huge projects and managing all of these other you know, personal relationships and obligations. Was there a moment in time when you thought, I can do, like, I can do big things, I can make change in my community? In 2009, my husband got really sick, and he was diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma. And we spent the next year in the hospital, and despite most odds, he had a bone marrow transplant, and he's been in remission for almost 10 years now. So I don't like using the word miracle, but there were a lot of a lot of times where it seemed like that was not ever going to be my future i had plan b and plan c in place that 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 was not going to be what happened and now he's healthy and we have kids and everything that seemed impossible in that moment was a thousand percent possible mm-hmm. And I think when that happened, I realized that life is too short. There's no time to spend to wonder if if you can do something, you should just try and do something. Be accountable to your community, but know that there are ways that everybody on an individual level can make change. And 
that probably seems like a stretch, but I realized in that experience and in that moment that there's no guarantee that tomorrow is actually going to happen. So you should start doing something today. And you, I mean, you're proof that an individual can make a difference. So that is definitely inspirational. Thank you so much. Thank you. For being here. I loved our conversation and I so admire all the things that you're doing. Thank you. The biggest and best thing you can do right now to support the podcast is to share this episode with a friend. Build our listenership, spread the word about the value of hearing artists talk about their work in this community. Let your friends know you listen and encourage them to listen too. Artist Soapbox theme music is by Bart Matthews. This episode of Artist Soapbox was recorded at Shadowbox Studio in Durham, North Carolina. See links in the show notes and on our website, artistsoapbox.org. And we're out.